Hi, everyone. It's the Life of Gem live video podcast, season three, episode four, and it's Gem. And today, tonight, I have Tony Ann Johnson on Giveaway. She's epic. She's the author of these two books and more, Light Skin Gone to Waste, which just came out recently and is an award-winning novel collection of stories. And then Homegoing, which is a novella, and they're related stories, and we'll talk about that. So let me read her bio, and then Tony Ann is going to read for you all. So Tony Ann Johnson won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction with her linked story collection, Light Skin Gone to Waste, which came out in 2022. It was selected for the prize and edited by the one and only Roxanne Gay, who's one of my idols. The collection is based on Johnson's experience growing up black in a small white town. It received a 2023 NAACP Image Award nomination for outstanding literary work. Her previous book, Homegoing from 2021, revisits these characters from her collection, and it was the winner of the Accents Publishing's inaugural novella contest. Her first novel, Remedy for a Broken Angel from 2014, about a family of jazz musicians, won a 2015 International Latino Book Award and was nominated for a 2015 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work by a Debut Author. Johnson won the Missouri Review's 2021 Miller Audio Prize for Prose for Writing and Performing the audio recording of her short story, Time Travel, which is available on SoundCloud. She's performed the audiobook narration for all three of her books available on Audible, so check that out. There's also a link to her in my in my comments. A two-time Pushcart Prize nominee, her short fiction has appeared widely, Hunger Mountain, Coachella Review, Xavier Review, Callahoo Journal, and in, is forthcoming in Fiction Magazine, their 50th anniversary issue. She's been a Sundance screenwriter, lab fellow, a Writer's Workshop Fellow with Callahoo and a Hurston Wright Fellow, and she's received support for her writing from a one-story summer conference and the Prague Summer Program for Writers. She holds an MFA from Antioch University in Los Angeles in creative writing. Welcome, Tony Ann. So, so happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. I mean, we've met in person because we met at AWP. Yes, that was great. It was wonderful so to see you read, too. <laughs> and um, we have this intersection of social justice, and we're going to talk about that later. So this episode is called On Social Justice, and you're going to find out why. But do you mind starting with a reading of some of your work? No, I really want them to hear your voice. I'm going to okay. read um, from, um, uh, what is the name of this story? <laughs> um, the Way We Fell Out of Touch. It takes Great. place in Monroe, New York. This is Velma. Cameras Maddie, on call. Maddie called and told me Phil ran into Gertie up in Goshen at one of those old folks' homes he works with. As bent over and decrepit as he looks, he ought to be living in one of those places himself, honestly. But that's her father, and I held my tongue. Gertie Dowd, sweet lady. Often wondered whatever happened to her. Maybe I'll get up there and visit her myself one of these days. We were still living on Stage Road when she started working for us a long time ago. The day we met, it was spring. My forsythia bush was blooming in the backyard like a big burst of yellow confetti. The reason I remember it so well 
It's because of the ruckus up the road that morning. I'd walk Brutus going toward the golf course like I had many times. We're talking back in the 70s before Monroe was so built up. Lots of pine trees, maple, birch, and coming from the city, I thought it was beautiful. Well, old Brutus took a dump in what I thought were nothing but some wild plants at the edge of the woods. <laughs> Looked like weeds to me. So I wasn't expecting it when Sally Gore, in a house coat and curlers in her frosted blonde hair, popped out of the trees like a horror house monster screaming at me. I catch you letting your dog crap in my garden again. I'm going to slap you. <laughs> I stepped forward and said, bitch, you and what brigade? You slap me, Sally, and I promise that'll be the last thing you do this side of the grave. Brutus growled, and big as he was, that scared her a bit. She backstepped and pulled her cat-eye glasses off her face. <laughs> My God, that woman could have made a clock strike 13. And what I said must have shocked the sugar cubes out of her, too, because her eyes went wide and her mouth stretched open big enough to fit a fist in it. Some of those Monroe white folks, honestly. I don't know what they thought half the time. Maybe that I was going to hang my head or say, yeah, some or whatever nonsense they saw on television, but she had another thing coming, even though my great Dane shouldn't have been doing his business on her property. I sure as hell wasn't gonna kowtow to silly Sally Gore. A few years before that, her daughter tried to commit suicide in my house. Mm -hmm. She babysat for Maddie against Sally's wishes, I soon found out. Caitlin was 13, 14 at the time and nuts about some boy her parents didn't approve of. Phil used to spend Friday nights at his office in the city. This was back when I was too naive to know what exactly he was spending those nights doing. And I'd go up to auction in Middletown. Sometimes when I'd get back, Caitlin would stick around and chat with me, tell me her little junior high problems. She needed somebody to listen to her and I was lonely, so I didn't mind the company. Well, one night I came home and the damn kid was passed out in my bathroom. She'd taken a bottle of sleeping pills. Had to rush her to the hospital myself because I didn't trust the little volunteer ambulance this town had, but I couldn't leave Maddie alone. She was four years old. So I pulled her out of bed and carried this unconscious teenager to the car and got her down to Tuxedo Hospital. They pumped her stomach and the head of the ER, Dr. Wagner, came out and told me she was okay. But when Sally Gore and her skinny little runt of a husband showed up and started fussing at me, what did I do to their daughter? The doctor let him have it. Wagner was a mountain of a man with a voice to match and it echoed through the halls of the hospital. Caitlin apparently shared some details about what was going on at home and he told them they were terrible parents. He said the kid felt unloved, unwanted, and shame on them. The guy was known to speak his mind. I saw Sally eyeing me across the room through her cat eye glasses. Now I wasn't one to contribute to anybody's humiliation. So I focused on Maddie. She was whining to go home. Turned out Sally had forbidden her kid to work for us. And she was mortified to have this play out in front of me, of all people. Even white trash likes to have somebody they can feel better than. Caitlin finished high school and left town, but Sally never got over the incident. She didn't like me before, and she really hated me after that. 
She had every right to be annoyed about the dog, but you have to understand this was a road that bordered the woods and her house was down a hill from there. You couldn't even see it through the trees. I had no idea it was her property. And I didn't ever walk the dog there again, but threatened to slap me? Please. I didn't back down from that kind of shit when I was a kid in Harlem, and I certainly wasn't going to take it from some backwoods hillbilly up here. Sally's tongue tied itself up in a knot after I let her know who she was dealing with. She was so hot in the face, even her ears turned red. But with a horse-sized dog beside me, what was she going to do? She stomped back down her hill and disappeared through the trees. Soon as I got home, I mean, it couldn't have been more than five minutes later, my neighbor Iris was at my back door telling me Sally called and told her what I said. Iris had this tickled smirk on her face and she said, I told her, I know Velma and I don't think she'd say a thing like that. I looked at her and said, oh yes, I did say it, Iris, and I'd say it again. She laughed and laughed, got a real kick out of it probably because my demeanor was typically feminine as a flower. It was. I couldn't live up here and act like some ghetto wild woman, my husband being a professional at all. Anything we did, including Phil's running around, everybody knew about it. This was a small town back then, and we didn't exactly blend in. Now, Iris was fun. She wasn't prejudiced. Nothing like that stupid Sally. First of all, the woman was movie star, gorgeous. I'm telling you, blonde, blue-eyed, shapely figure, had a handsome husband who loved and provided for her and kids who didn't give her a whole lot of trouble. Guess she had no reason not to be nice. A lot of women in town had a problem with her because she really was a beauty. But that didn't bother me, because so was I. Listen, I have never been jealous of another woman's beauty. Now, I might admire somebody else's eyes or her figure or whatever, but not so much that I didn't like my own. Even with all Phil's carrying on, well, okay, I was jealous about that, but not because I thought they were prettier. Please. I used to model for Ebony and win beauty contests at the Harlem Y, and the woman I call my grandmother, bless her crazy heart, was constantly telling me I was the prettiest girl in the world. And I believed her. Shoot, I still look good all these years later in my 70s. And Phil's rickety old ass is with another one of his bow-wows. This one bow-wowier than the one before. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm like goosebumps. You inhabit that character. Thank you. I mean, Velma's a card anyways. I, that was a trip. <laughs> la, and as someone who wrote about her own, my mom was Mexican mother, who I used to say could make the devil wet himself when she was <laughs> mad. I, I mean, I love the vibrancy of her voice. So yeah, that story is from like skin gone to waste, correct? Correct. Okay. And um, just so people know, there is a collection and then her book before that homegoing is a novella and they're linked. So they really do work together. So let's talk about writing about family. How hard was that? I know this is fiction, but it's based somewhat on your life. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's based a lot on my life. Um, it, it was a challenge. Like I know my mother didn't 
didn't really want me to. Um, my fa- it was easier because my father passed away in 2014. Mm-hmm. So I was already working on the collection then, um, mm-hmm. but I wrote a number of the stories involving his character, Phil, um, after my dad had passed away. Okay. Um, but I did interview my parents for the book. So I did ask them a lot of questions so they knew that it was happening. But still, you know, they had a lot of questionable <laughs> um, things that they did in their lives. And, you know. And you show the good and the bad. And uh, we have w- someone named Nicole Sconers here. I've never met her. She says, brilliant storytelling. Velma is such a vibrant character. And I wholeheartedly you, agree. <laughs> um, so your award-winning book, it's a collection of stories like Skin Gone to Waste. For me, it's a it's a stunning example of a short story collection, autobiographical fiction. There, it's based on the character of Maddie, the young protagonist, and her parents, Phil and Velma. And it's about um, she's growing up in this almost all white town as one of the only young black people there. And in Homecoming, which is related, she's older and growing. Um, So you see her as a child and then as an older grown adult. And it's so interesting to see her aged and aged and how all the trauma from light skin gone to waste, this collection is showing up as an adult. Do you want to talk about that? I know you wrote Home Going first, or did you write them around the same time? So I started working on this collection when I was a student at Antioch University, um, and that was back in 2007. And so the first draft of Home Going, it started as a short story. <laughs> it just became longer and turned out to be a novella, but the first draft um, was back then. And I, the first story that I wrote was claiming Tobias. So I was working on the whole thing um, at the same time, pretty much. And at one point, the whole book was all together. So Homegoing was part of Light Skin Gone to Waste. And there's a whole nother chunk of the book. There's a number of other stories, one story from, so I mentioned Iris Magna in, in this last reading and the Magnas have a story. It's a, a third person plural story. The sister has a couple of stories. She has her own experience. Uh, the grandmother has a story. And then there's another novella that takes place when Maddie goes to college, the first, the first semester of college, um, when her parents finally split up. So all of that was at one time, one long book that was supposedly a novel, um, but it didn't sell. And so I pulled the book apart um, Smart. and I had... I entered Homegoing into a novella contest and it won. So that's how that got published. So it's kind of confusing how what was what came first, but I didn't actually write Homegoing before the book. It was just sort of all at the same time. <laughs> well, I hope you put out the other novella soon about Maddie and about her college life and about the parents breaking up because a lot, the most interesting thing that I really loved about this is that you ha- you see some stuff that's not really Shown, but that's talked about so we know it's happened we know she's gone to college that she's a singer in new york and you know we know the parents are broken up and then so i mean i would love to hear her college stories i mean i would love to hear those so i need some place to sell the book <laughs> hey we, yeah we need to talk because i think i think you, that would be a 
you know, they have this, um, they have some prizes that are international and national, but you're in LA. So you would qualify for the local writer staff and you could submit the manuscript. Cause I think, I think it needs to get out there and they, yeah. they're a great organization with a publishing arm and they do a lot of really good marketing now. And I, I think for me, the most important thing, and you tell me if you agree, when you choose a publisher is how much they're going to cherish your work. And then if I'm, I love marketing, so I don't mind doing it, but people need to realize with a small press, you don't always get the marketing. I know you did with this one. I'll tell you that. I I think they're doing a really good job. So they didn't do all that. (laughs) I paid a publicist for, for my marketing and, and I did a lot of stuff on my own. So I actually wrote to a reporter whose work I liked and told him months before the book came out that I had won the Flannery O'Connor Award. And he was the one who got um, a yes from the LA Times. So I got was profiled in the LA Times. But that was just, had nothing to do with the press or their PR. It was just me reaching out on my own. So that's something I recommend for writers is to do some of that legwork by yourself if you can. I think that's such an important thing to highlight because everyone thinks it happens magically. And it's just about you putting yourself out there and doing cold calling sometimes. If you if there's a bookstore you like, call the bookstore. If there's, you know, people that you know and that you've been in touch with in different magazines or reach out to them. Let them know your book is coming out. I think that's so smart. And look what happened. You got an LA Times profile, which is you can't pay for that. They you can't even a publicist can't necessarily get you that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, Brie De Jesus, hi from Monroe, New York friend. Great hi, job Brie. in character reading. Uh, I mean, I have to say this. Not all people who can write can read or perform. And you really do perform and inhabit your characters, which is what I love the most about watching people read who are masters at it. And you are. Thank and you. Uh, it was just, it, I was mesmerized. Good. <laughs> I'm glad. Thanks. So do you hear her? I know your mom's still here. So when you read her aloud, do you kind of hear her and feel her? I do. Um, We're not in touch now, but, um, but, you know, I did grow up with her. So I do, um, I do hear her. And I actually read what I read you. I read to her uh, a few years ago and she laughed and she liked it. It's a good she told piece. me the story. So I interviewed her, like asking her about, you know, life in Monroe. And that was one of the stories she told me. So, And I love her self-confidence in it. The kind of judge, yeah. the, the way she talks about these white people. I mean, it's just, it's real. It's authentic. Mm. So I, you hear that. Um, so Roxanne Gay edited light skin gone to waste what was that like was that like uh like a dream come true kind of thing well so the reason I submitted the book to the Flannery O'Connor award was because of her and I did not expect to win because as I told you I pulled the book apart so they had a 75,000 word limit and Mm. I had to pull out home going I had to pull out like a bunch of stories that weren't about Maddie Um, and then I just slapped it back together and sent it in. So I was kind of shocked to win, but what I was trying to do was just get my work in front of her because she has her own imprint at Grove Atlantic. And I have, I have a novel that I was working on that I wanted to submit. And my hope was that she would like my work enough that maybe she would be willing to take a look at that. So when I won, I was like, I was over the moon. I was actually on, on the phone, like with some of my, um, women who submit colleagues 
and I was screaming and I couldn't tell anybody because I just found out. But the fact that it was her, that she was the judge and that she chose it, it was amazing to me. And then working with her was, was great. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of interaction, but she gave really, really smart notes. And she also gave me the freedom to reject some notes if I wanted to. Um, And she just was very incisive, like in, in how she pinpointed, like where things needed to be opened up, where I was hiding. And Mm. she kind of just pushed me uh, to go a little bit further. And I think she definitely made the book better. um, And she was lovely. Oh, that's amazing. It's Isn't it kind of magical in a way how you describe how you put this together? Because what I thought is that the stories were so worked so well together. And so I think you something magical happened when you focused on Maddie. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my original idea. So I when I started this book at Antioch, it was called Light Skin Gone to Waste. But the subtitle was The Maddie Stories. And then when other people started giving me feedback, I got the note to, um, to bring in more points of view. And so that's what I did for this bigger version Mm -hmm. of the book. I added all these other points of view, but those were what I took out when I had to shrink the book down in order to submit it to the Flannery O'Connor award. So because Maddie's based on me and that was my original idea, I prioritized Maddie and just focused on mostly on her um, for this book. Yeah. And she's ranging in ages from very young to in her tweens. And um, what I found so interesting is you, you write a lot in your mom's voice. I actually added a story in my book in my mom's voice, which was one of the hardest stories to write for me. My dad, I always heard him very strongly. My dad uh, sits on a psychic told me my dad sits on my shoulder when I write. And I can always hear my dad's character and voice, but my mom was much harder for me. And I think what I was just so impressed by is the mother and father characters, how you show the good, bad, and the ugly. And your dad's a psychologist. The The father in the book is a psychologist and your own dad, father was a psychologist. And, you know, there's a lot of trauma that happens to Maddie. And this is hard stuff to talk about, right? From a social justice and even from a perspective of we don't want to, this character to be like the one everyone holds up as like a victim or something. But on the other hand, I really thought you did a beautiful job of just showing the complexities of this all. Right. Thank you. And the racism was so blatant. I mean, especially against the parents in the book. I mean, they had their pipes busted out. Um, They were throwing bricks through the windows. People picketed them when they moved into this all white neighborhood. So was one of your goals in writing this to show the blatant racism, especially when I look at a movie that you did about 25 years ago called Ruby Bridges that deals with those same issues in Louisiana during school integration. And the protagonist is an actual young woman that existed, Ruby Bridges. Mm -hmm. Like, what's that? What's that intersection that you are so good at creating these characters not out of whole cloth, right? These are people that actually existed that they're based on, but mm-hmm. that you're able to intersect those so- these social justice issues with their character, with their mm-hmm. with their souls, right? Well, the, the scenes um, with my the characters based on my parents, 
my father told me that he had to move into that neighborhood with guns, that he had to like, he had to go around with guns at some point. And my mother had always said, oh, that's bullshit. Your father's exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. But my sister, I was on a road trip with my sister and I brought it up and my sister said, oh no, I remember that day. I was there and daddy met, like there was this big man, he looked like a lumberjack and he brought guns and he and daddy walked the cul-de-sac. And so I had her point of view and I had my dad's point of view. And I didn't have a goal to highlight the virulent racism. I really was just trying to tell the story, but there, there is a part of me that wanted to get it down because all my life I kept being told, oh, it's not that bad. It wasn't that bad. Like I was called the N word a lot and it just, it just wasn't a big deal. Like people didn't get in a lot of trouble for that. People didn't apologize for it. It just wasn't that big a deal, but it was hard to be one of the only people of color and then have to deal with that at the bus stop on the bus in school from parents and kids. So it, I wanted to write, what happened. I wanted to yeah. document what happened and I wanted to see for myself and I wanted to be heard because I continue to get this gaslighting from both my parents that it wasn't that bad. My mother had like no empathy for any of the stuff that happened. It was like, yeah. suck it up. Like say, you know, you were kind of on your Island. Maddie is on, on my Island. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, this poor girl is so strong, yet there's no one supporting her at all. My I my parents did not want to hear any criticism about their choice to move to this neighborhood. They liked it. And my dad was a professional, so my parents could curate the relationships that they had in the town with other professionals. So my dad was friends with the dentist and with a doctor and with lawyers. And he was friends with professional people who by and large were liberal. My mother had her own business. You know, if somebody was rude to my mother, she could say, get the fuck out of here. You know, she didn't have to take anything that I had to take. And so they didn't really see where your dad is going into the country club and you're sitting in his car and this white man comes up to you and says, get away from that car. And I was literally crying for Maddie. I was like that the privilege that the dad inhabits with his occupation, even though he, I'm sure he dealt with a lot. Maybe we don't even know, but that you as a young girl had to deal with these older figures of authority questioning you constantly. And then your own friends that like basically ostracized you and were outright racist and discriminatory towards you. Well, that, that only, only the young friends, like by the time I was a little bit older, my friends were nice to me. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, they weren't, you had your girls that they weren't, they weren't always able to be sophisticated about race and sensitive to me. They were little girls, you know, Peppermint Patty. I love her, but I wasn't (laughs) ostracized as a teenager, um, as a little girl, like in my neighborhood, um, I wouldn't say that I was ostracized, but there were bullies in the neighborhood yeah. who were racist and who threw rocks at me and called me the N word. Um, so that was hard. That was really, yeah. I mean, I still remember how my heart was beating um, when I was running from hard. people throwing rocks at me. Like I remember thinking I was going to die. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was hard, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't like that, you know, 24 seven, 365 days a year, but there were some, some intense moments. And those are the ones I wrote about. So that's kind of what you do in short stories. Like you yeah. write about pivotal days or, or consequential events that, that happen that, you know, often are, might be the worst days of your life. Yeah. And there's a lot of joy in the book too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I love just Maddie as a character and her with her friends. And there's this sense of childhood and not everything is like you said, ugly, but I think that for me, what struck me the most, even with the characters like Peppermint Patty, who they call her Peppermint Patty, the character who is Mm -hmm. really good to Maddie and they get along really well. And she's not, she doesn't ever say anything derogatory or racial or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But there's the standard of beauty that young Maddie is having to measure up because Mm -hmm. she is, pretty much one of the only young black girls in the town that I just found very um, hard because, you know, as someone that was never Mexican enough or white enough myself, I'm biracial, I'm half Mexican, half white. And in Mexican circles, I'm sometimes seen as a white girl. In white circles, I'm seen as so Mexican. And my husband laughs. She just says Juanita, like she doesn't even speak Spanish. <laughs> and my husband's fluent. He's Argentine. But um, I mean, um, I think that it's it's funny the way that Feeling like an outsider, it's 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 it it does stay with you. How do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, it does. And I and I I dealt with that a bit in in home going. Like Maddie does mm-hmm. always feel like an outsider, and it it kind of becomes part of your identity. So you, for me, you know, when when if a if a relationship broke up and I was alone, I I kind of revisited that same feeling of feeling like isolated and alone as a child. Um, So there was a part of me, I think that just thought, Oh, well, this is what my life is like. Like I'm always the outsider. I'm always the one who's by herself. Um, And I was trying, like Maddie is trying to articulate that to her dad. And he's like, Oh yeah, whatever. (laughs) Like Her parents aren't, aren't really receptive to hearing um, what, didn't work for her in her childhood. They think they gave her the greatest childhood ever and just yeah. can't hear otherwise. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was hard by that age. She's a little more accepting of what she actually looks like though. She's not like constantly trying to change it. Yeah. And what was interesting, I don't want to give too much away, but there is some um, trauma and light skin gone to waste that Maddie has to deal with that also comes up in homegoing, just the ramifications of that. And She's clearly depressed, the character, and um, she's going through it. I've been through a deep depression. I know what it looks like. And she's giving her parents all these signals um, about how she's feeling inside as far as her, uh, she had gone through IVF and it failed. And mm-hmm. I've been through that. And I know what that feels like to have this hopeless feeling. So, and, and so I felt it was interesting that the parents in home going, again, they're not only clueless about the past, they're clueless about the present. They're kind of always yeah. like, pushing the character. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Right. That's like, that is just an element of narcissism. Like narcissists are, they have a hard, they, they don't have empathy. They, they, and and everything's all about them. Like in the opening of home going, Maddie's like trying to tell her mother something. And she just like goes on this long monologue and Maddie's not even on the phone. She's just like talking and talking about herself. And then finally, like she comes back to, you know, what Maddie said in the beginning, but that and Maddie's just like been broken up with her boyfriend of ham or husband of husband ten years, of being ten years right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
So, yeah, that's that is something that I write about a lot. The in um, in my first book, Remedy for a Broken Angel, I deal with a narcissistic parent as well. Um, so mm. it, it's just it's a recurring thing in my work. I've studied <laughs> it. Um, so it, it, I like writing about. It. I think that narcissists can be really amusing. They can be frustrating and infuriating, but they can also be really funny. Oh yeah. Um, in in their you know how self involved they are. So. Yeah, I know a few, so I won't say who um, <laughs> in my family. So you, you, all of your books like travel time frames. So I found it really interesting that in Light Skin Gone to Waste, we're kind of traversing the '60s, the '70s, and then we're flashing forward at one point, really far ahead. And then this is um, set in—is it in the '90s? It's in the mid 2000s. It's okay. 2006 mostly, but it does talk about the past it yeah. does go, you know there, there's a reference to what happened with Tobias and Maddie yeah um, so how do you um traverse time frame in place I think that's a really hard thing to do well and you do it very well do you do research do you go back to these places because I personally think it's it's a really hard thing to do to show a place now and then yeah I did go back to Monroe mm -hmm. and you know really I took pictures and, and really looked around. Um, my mother still lives it, not far from there. So I did, I went back to the old house. So like, right, uh. I write about that steep driveway and it doesn't look as steep to me now, but when I was little, it was really steep. People didn't like to drive up it. Um, so uh. I, I guess what I do for the different time periods is really focus a lot on the details. So the details of what's like in the space, what, what, so basically, you know, I guess because I was a screenwriter, mm -hmm. I look at the space that I'm writing about. And so what's in the frame? What, wow. you know, what, what are we, what's in the room? So I'll, I'll focus on those details, but then I'll also think about details in terms of language. Like what were the words that people were using then? So in the sixties, uh, people were using the term Afro-American. Um, they were using the term groovy, you know, and it, those those words and the terms yeah. change like as the time changes. So whatever I could do to make things very specific, yeah, I tried to do. Yeah, I thought you did it really well. Now, I think that's really good advice for the writers who are watching because I personally, I think I had a little bit of um, internal bias about screenwriting, about how deep it went. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like when I took a theater class and I realized how deep acting is. When mm -hmm. I started screenwriting and, and taking some seminars in it, I was like, oh, my goodness. This is in some ways deeper than uh, writing fiction or nonfiction and short stories and novels because you do have to show that space and the, and the characters in the space so vividly, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really good suggestion to think about what's in the frame, Mm -hmm. reference that you're talking about um and then talk a little bit if you don't mind about ruby bridges so you're a very accomplished screenwriter ruby bridges is one of your earlier films that you wrote talk about what's going on with ruby bridges right now for people who don't know oh um well last week uh the film was banned in a school in saint petersburg florida because a parent of a second grader felt the film was inappropriate for second graders and because of DeSantis, um, DeSantis has enacted the, these anti-woke laws. And then there's also the parental rights law or act. And so the parental rights law empowers individual parents 
to object to something that's being taught in the schools. And wow. what, what he's trying to do is um, take away inclusive education, inclusive right. instruction. So you can't teach African-American studies. You can't teach Latino studies. You can't teach native studies. He's criminalizing teaching certain things that they don't want taught. Um, so obviously like they're centering the white experience and, and white American history. Um, so that the film got caught up in that mess. And yeah. so this one parent had, had the ability to object. And so it had to go to a committee to review. They did review it. And just a couple of days ago, the committee decided, no, it's okay. <laughs> and they were going to show it again. Um, and you know, I think that for, if you, if you're the parent of a second grader, no problem. Like if you don't want your second grader to watch it, that's fine. But I don't think it's appropriate for one parent to remove yeah. the ability for teachers to teach the film and for other parents to have their kids see the film. Like that one person shouldn't have that kind of power. And I think that kind of goes against a democracy. I think if you start doing that, it's kind of dangerous because you're whittling away people's rights. Um, and Florida is particular, particularly bad about that. Yeah. And just so people know, Ruby Bridges is a, a very beautifully made movie. It's streaming on Disney right now if you want to watch it. And it's from the perspective of young Ruby who actually existed. This is based on a real character in Louisiana and the segregated South, and they're integrating the schools. And Ruby was one of the ones who had to, she was a very gifted child who they put in an all white school. And the vitriol that this young girl faces is so extreme. And it's showing so vividly. I think that's what scares people about it, but it's why it needs to be shown. Because mm -hmm. it's capturing time and place again in a very specific way. And these deniers and people who want to forget the past and rewrite history and tell us that it wasn't that bad. It was that bad, right? Yeah. And I think that it's important for people to understand their history, like understanding where we come from helps us understand where we need to go. It helps us know who we are. And so withholding that information from students, withholding history from students, I think is a disservice to them. Yeah. I understand why conservative right-wing people would want to suppress that, but I don't think in the long run it's good for the country. I don't think it's good for education. Yeah, and it's not good to be a well-rounded student to not see movies that matter like that. And, you know, as someone who talks a lot about the construct of criminal justice and how it's based on slavery and, you know, it's just an extension of Jim Crow, and there's plenty of books on that. Michelle Alexander wrote a book called, you know, The New Jim Crow, and it's about drug laws. In your and, book. Uh, <laughs> and I quote some, I quote, you know, Black Panther, um, uh, Angela Davis in there who said, you know, uh, communities of color are being criminalized. It's not, mm -hmm. it's about selective enforcement really is mm -hmm. what she was saying. And this is 30 years, 20, 30 years ago, she's writing about this and our prisons ab obsolete. And she was one of the forefronts on the forefront of the abolitionist movement. And people so discounted her voice back then, like she was crazy. And I use mm -hmm. crazy pejoratively, personally, because they literally thought she was crazy to mm -hmm. say these things. But now, what are we, what are a lot of people right. saying? She that we need right. to start over. She was mm -hmm. right. 
And so you can pretend like this stuff doesn't exist and that drug laws were not based at pe- of, on people of color, but it's a fiction mm-hmm. because people who work in the industry know when you look in the box in the courtroom, they're all black and brown and poor white folk. So mm-hmm. not as only is it racist, it's economically biased. So mm-hmm. those two things together, it's it's horrifying, really. Yeah. And, and some kids are being raised, you know, if DeSantis has his way without understanding any of the history of racism. So if a child walks into that courtroom and sees all the people that they're all black and brown, what are they going to think if they don't understand why that is? If they don't understand the history of racism, they just blame the people. It's the it's right. the it's their fault. It's not, you know, the system or policies that um that have led to those disparities. So that's super interesting, like putting that together. If we don't educate our youth on this history, history of racism and the systemic racism that is prevalent everywhere in all systems. And you let's talk about that because you talk a lot in all your books about the systemic racism within education. Right. And we know this has been going on for years. And you start with Ruby Bridges about, you know, integration and then and then young Maddie is dealing with that. Her, her father is like growing up and, you know, working within these white industries and succeeding, but what, at what price you wonder, like, what is it that Maddie's trying to, as a character, how does she see education? Because she must be torn. I, young Maddie, I don't think she's really sophisticated enough to understand what's Mm. happening. Um, I remember being singled out by my first grade teacher who really did not want to teach me how to read. And she mm-hmm. really didn't like me. Um, my family was in Turkey the summer before first grade. So I, I missed the first few weeks of first grade. But I was put in the slow class and I was six years old. But I knew that this was the slow class because I went to kindergarten with those people. And I was like, Oh hell no, I'm not staying in this class. And I pitched a fit. And then, so then this other teacher had to take me and she was really mad. She did not want to take me. And so she, they were already like reading see Dick run and you know, the Dick and Jane book, they were already reading and I wasn't caught up yet and she didn't want to help me. And so I struggled in that class. And then somewhere during the year, she slapped me in the bathroom. She actually hit me. And I was so stunned and and ashamed. I wasn't doing anything terrible. I was a six-year-old. I was playing in the bathroom with my friend. She was screaming too, but she didn't get hit. But I remember that. Wow. And I never told my mother. My, I thought my mother was crazy. My mother would have gone up there and probably slapped that woman back. But I never told my mother until I was an adult but that stuck with me and i felt you know i felt diminished and it made me go inside myself yeah. and i was just a, very sad in that class and and continued to struggle for the rest of that year with that wow. teacher and then the next year i had a nice teacher who was lovely so that helped but man that was a miserable experience and now i mean i have a story in my book about a teacher hitting me and my mom going down there and t- and it was a white teacher and i was mexican and my mom's mexican she told miss glenn off and told you know i mean told everyone off basically and my mom like i Good. said she could scare 
I mean, my mom's scary when she's mad. She can still <laughs> scare me when she's mad. And she's that woman had no business hitting somebody else's child. Because what happens, um, you know, especially for a young girls like us that are focused on that want to do well in school, probably in our people, please. We want to be the one at the front, the teach. Yeah. I was wanted to be teacher's pet being ostracized and hit. I was like, like you said, so ashamed. And my twin sister, we had switched classes is why it happened. Me and oh. my twin sister did a little switcheroo and my nice teacher didn't do anything to my twin. But to me, I was like, you know, and so, I, we, me and my twin still fight over the story over who got hit. I remember being hit. <laughs> She said she got hit, so we kind of go back and forth. Twins are uh, crazy. That's funny. That's so interesting. But that that idea that as a young girl um, who's struggling with reading only because she's been away in this foreign country for a while and then not getting the support, you know, this goes back to, you know, with issues of IQ testing, African-American children, they're no longer allowed to in schools. Why? because they used it against them and they put mm. them in the slow classes. And so now it, now it's kind of gone back and you wish they kind of did so you could put the gifted, but I mean, which is worse. I don't know. My younger sister, Annie was forced to be in a bilingual class and my mom didn't like that either. She, so, I mean, I, I it's so complicated. This idea, mm-hmm. I grew up in a, a very diverse, my neighborhood was mostly all black and Mexican when I grew up. So I don't think that that issue was there as much as some kids faced. And I was kind of like supported in my, you know, but I remember reading and teachers not believing my level. Mm. And I, I was reading uh, like college in elementary school. Cause I started reading when I was three and I was reading Harlequins when I was six and wow. you know, F starts with Gerald by 10 mm-hmm. and, but they didn't believe it. Why didn't they believe it? That's what happens to Ruby. Her the principal mm-hmm. lowers her scores. Oh my gosh! Uh, because that scene. Yeah, because she doesn't. Basically, because she doesn't want to put out there that this little black girl did better than the kids in the other class than the white kids. Yeah. So she lowers the scores. And uh, Barbara, I interviewed Barbara Henry, and she told me th- about that. And Ruby told me about it as well. Wow. Again, a historical fact that people are trying to hide. And so I think that to me, um, that's the thing that was so resonant, especially with the young Ruby character. Just You just fall in love with this little girl and she's so bright and energetic and smart, but then becomes traumatized by the abuse and vitriol she suffers. Um, so do you have any advice for people who are watching about writing about these difficult subjects or characters or historical issues or hard issues within your own family. You know, there's trauma and, you know, light skin gone to waste. That must've been very hard to write about. You're writing also about your father's, you know, the main character Phil's infidelity. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that? Do you just, just let it go and just do the writing and then worry about it later? Do you compartmentalize? Like, how do you do it? I, I personally just compartmentalize and I think, okay, I'm just going to write it and then I'll worry about who's going to see it later. Oh, you, I can't, worry about who's going to see it while I'm writing it. Cause mm-hmm. I will never, I will never get it done. I mean, if I think if you are truly worried about your family's yeah. response, like maybe don't write it until they're no longer here, <laughs> like wait until they're dead. Um, but in terms of just the difficulty and the emotional um, cost of, of, of doing that work, I, you know, I, I trained as an actor and so I was trained to go deep into the emotion. So that doesn't bother me. 
I can cry while I'm at the at the keyboard. And uh, most of my writer friends like have shared that they do too. Like they're just sitting there crying and I don't mind that. Like uh, I might, I might maybe need to like take a break and, uh, and recover and kind of like chill out for a couple of days after going deep into something. I mean, there were definitely stories that brought back a lot of really difficult stuff. And it, I, I have to say it was really hard but I think that that's part of the job. That's part of the craft. That's part of what being an artist is, is going deep. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not pleasant, but that's where you find discoveries. That's what's interesting. If it's, if it's just easy and it all flows along, like that's boring to me. Like I like the, you know, really deep messed up uh, stuff, but I also like to balance it with humor. So even in the you know most difficult, painful things, I I do like to find try to find some moments of levity. Um, and you know, you say out. you trained as an actress, and now all you're reading perfect like the the way that you inhabited the Velma character when you're reading her, it completely mm-hmm. makes sense. How do you think at that acting training has made you a better writer, screenwriter, um, you know, reader? It's definitely. Uh, been that's how I learned to write. So I started oh. writing because I was acting. So I was, I was an actress in the early '80s. I went to NYU and got a BFA in drama, and I came out. I, I skipped a couple of grades. So I was 20 years old, and I was like, you know, <laughs> wanting to be in the in the business, doing theater in New York, and trying to get into movies and stuff. But this is what I look like. And in 1980 and 81 and 82, like in, you know, really up until like the nineties being this light, it was really difficult to get cast, um, as a black person, but I wasn't, I wasn't light enough to be white. And so I started writing material for myself. I started writing plays and, um, and I, I wrote from the point of view of the characters. So I would just become the characters and then, you know, write what they said and just have them talk to me and tell me, you know, what, what was going on with them. Um, so that's kind of how I learned to inhabit um, the characters was from that place, um, just from making choices and, and being specific about who people were and what their desires were, um, what their voices were. I liked creating voices and stuff. Yeah. Um, It definitely helps with writing uh, screenplays because writing dialogue, like I can play all the parts like while I'm working. So I know, (laughs) I know that when somebody gets on set, they're going to be able to comfortably say these lines. And in fact, this woman who was one of the producers of, of Ruby Bridges said to me, that the executive at Disney said, can you tell her to write some better dialogue here? It, it was in the scene at the end of the movie where one teacher, the, the, the teacher who had previously been unfriendly to Barbara Henry then is nice to her. And it was that scene and he didn't like the dialogue. And I said, I'm not changing that dialogue <laughs> because I knew that it worked. And then I met that actress, Patricia Darbo, who played that other, other, um, teacher and she told me oh yeah it does work like she told me I was right and so I was like yes (laughs) yeah and you knew that right I I, knew more about writing dialogue than that guy yeah (laughs) so I wasn't I was 
I was so mad when I got that note. I wanted to say, get the fuck out of here, but I just, I just refused to. <laughs> I'm actually adapting my um, chat book into a, a mini a series, a limited series. Oh, that's series. awesome. Yeah, and Jenny's going to be a punk rock lawyer, and so she, she, you're going to see her dad die, and then she becomes a public defender, and it's going to be a procedural law drama, but I really struggle with how much dialogue you have to write for these things, because I write in scene, I love scene, I write in dialogue, mm-hmm. But I think people underestimate how much work goes into a screenplay, a TV show. It's so dialogue heavy. And every Mm. piece of dialogue has to matter. And you have to move the story along so quickly in every episode. Oh, my God. I'm like, this, you need a very, I mean, I do feel like I found my people and that I'm not too much in this group, which I'm always too much everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I kind of felt like more at home, even within the writing community. That's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because a lot of them are actors and they're kind of Mm -hmm. out there and they all perform and they're Mm -hmm. not scared of it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. It's a lack of fear that I really love about it. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting that you like branched out into that and that you love it. Well, I mean, I mean, oh, we have we have a question that I love right now. This is a great question, and it's related to what we were talking about. And I wanted to ask you this. I had it at the bottom of my note. I had handwritten it in. Will we see Light Skin Gone to Waste as a play or a TV series? I think it could work as either. And what do you envision for these stories? And I know there's another book that might exist about Maddie in college. So do you see it as a trilogy maybe that could eventually be put back together in some kind of movie, film, or limited series, or even network series, who knows? I would love that, and I'm open to it, but the only thing that's actually in the works right now is a play based on the the story that I read from. Um, okay. And the way we fell Thank out you, of Nicole, touch. by the way. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So I, so I adapted that um, along with my dramaturg um, and director, Robin McKee, and we've been working on it for a few years. We've done a couple of public readings of it at a theater that is near where she lives in Carmel, California. Okay. So that, um, that will probably happen uh, because it's, it's kind of on its feet. It has a director, it has a theater, it has a space. Um, Please keep us posted. I want to come see any table reads or any productions of it. Yeah. I I don't have a plan to do it in LA. So, and this theater is in Northern California, but I can let you know anyway. In fact, my friend Pamela, who I told you about, who also lives in the Inland Empire, she drove up there with her daughter to see it. So that was really fun. But um, but that's the only thing that, that I, you know, have for sure on the books. I'm open to it being a series if somebody wants to make it. um, I'm not actively like uh, pitching it or anything. Um, I tend to write a lot of period stuff and period pieces about people of color are not the easiest thing to sell. Um, So I'm focused more on the next books. So I have, you know, I have another book of stories. I have a novel. I'm focusing more on what is in my control. The other stuff, Mm -hmm. um, I can't really control that. Um, And I've enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed my time in the movie and TV business and I did well. And I prefer writing books. I prefer writing fiction and I prefer being able to actually have something that I can sell um, once I'm finished. Like I, I did spend lots of time like doing pitch after pitch after pitch. Yeah. And then when it's over, it's just a bunch of wasted time because there's nothing I can do with that except maybe turn it into fiction or something. Yeah. But 
Um, I, so I I'm not, also I'm not see this as a one-woman show in some ways, like a monologue-driven show. Um, you know, Maddie is such a strong character in both of these. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just my thought. That's uh, a good idea. I have never, you know? I have never thought about doing any of it as a as a one-woman show. Um, I could, I have thought of like individual stories being adapted as plays or mm-hmm. as something else, and and I would love to see it on TV. I would love to make that. TV money. <laughs> yeah. But I just don't want to, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm really careful about what I spend my time doing. And I don't want to spend a lot of time creating something that may not go anywhere. I'd rather focus on what I actually can do. And that I know that, you know, even if I don't sell to a big press, I can, I can sell the next book and the next book after that. Yeah. Yeah, and I really do see this could be a trilogy or a four-part series. You know, you kind of pulled a big book apart, kind mm-hmm. of a gold mine in a way, and probably very smart if you think about it. I always recycle my work or use it in other places or break it up too. I think it's mm-hmm. a te- technique you can use to keep yourself relevant and out there and producing, but not necessarily like killing yourself while doing it, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a lot of work to write this stuff. And your work is so finely crafted. It's so beautifully wrought. Like I said, it both of the books together reminded me of some of my favorite short story collections, like James Joyce's Dubliners. And I mean that. Um, it's just beautiful. Ruth Ruthie Marlinet is here. She wrote Agave Blues, and she's a screenwriter. And she said, hi, happy to be watching as I drive home through the IE. She lives in Palm Springs. Can't mm-hmm. wait to read the book. Uh, Tish. Thank you, Ruthie. Tisha, who's Tisha. coming out. <laughs> whose Love book you. Breaking Patterns is coming out with Inlandia uh, in December. Yes, I just read it and blurbed it. <laughs> oh, I blurbed it too. We're going to be on the same page together. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we got to go together to her events. Oh, um, yes. I will I definitely be going. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, um, and interestingly enough, what Ruthie says is, I'm with you on focusing on the novel. And Ruthie's been writing screenplays for years too. And so it's kind of interesting because I do think. Um, having kind of delved into the screenwriting stuff, there is a lot of stuff you cannot control the market, the executives, the pitching, um, your, your audience, whether it ever gets made, even if it gets bought, it could not get made. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is something brilliant in focusing on the work, the Mm -hmm. writing, and then you could always try to adapt it yourself or sell it. Mm -hmm. And then someone else could adapt it. So there, Oh, Tisha, I'm waving on you. I'm waving at you. And we're going to go eat, Tisha, because Tisha loves to eat. I'm just saying. And then Lucy Rodriguez Hanley, another uh, writer's who hey, submit. Hey, Lucy. Lucy's brother lives in Monroe, so she knows Monroe. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Lucy's from New York, right? Interesting. And mm-hmm. then Nicole's here. Fascinating yeah. discussion. <laughs> so we have a, a couple minutes left, and I do uh, want you to read really quick, but tell the viewers, what's next on the horizon for you, where they can find you, where they can get your books. So what I'm doing next is being a judge for the Flannery O'Connor Award, not the judge, but one of the reading judges. Um, So that starts soon, like in in the next few days. Um, You can find my books um, on Amazon or bookshop.org or in local indie bookstores. I know Octavia's Bookshelf has it in Pasadena. Uh, my website is www.tonyannjohnson.com. Um, and oh, and I've done all the audiobooks for all my books. My, fir- my first book and the more recent two books, I've done the audio narration for. So I'd love for you to download those. I'm going to do that them. tomorrow. 
because I think um, I, I love when writers read their own work on audio. Um, one of my favorite audiobooks of all time is um, it's not read by the author, obviously, is when uh, Sissy Spacek did, you know, the Atticus Fitch novel. I forget. Um, I'm drawing a blank, but she read it and it just draws you in. And The Goldfinch is another really good audiobook. So I could see the way you read. I, I can't wait to get the audiobook of this. I'm so excited that that you did your own audio because I know it's not always a given. Did you stipulate that in your contract? I'm just interested. I try to. So what yeah. so I had done the audiobooks. Uh, I produced the audiobooks for my first two books. Um and so when when we were doing the contract, I did say that I wanted to do the audiobook, and they did not say yes. And then what ended up happening is we got a clause where if they didn't produce an audiobook within 18 months, oh, I could then do it myself. And then when I won the Miller Audio Prize, I just sent that information to the managing editor. And they used that to pitch the book to Tantor Audio. And they said, okay, and bought the audiobook rights and then hired me separately to do the narration. Wow. And Lucy has a great idea. Please teach a class on recording your work. I would take that class. Oh, a lot I would, of us like, would. To that. I would yeah. like to do that. I would like to do that. And you could do the practical stuff, like how do you get an audio contract? And then you could do the performance stuff because this stuff is not easy. No, it, I, I think having an acting background definitely helps um, and practicing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I did, I actually ended up doing somebody else's audiobook, a book called Karma Under Fire by Ooh. Love Hudson Maggio. And uh, a friend of mine, Shiva, um, did the, did the other voice and he also produced. And that was a great experience. So it was fun, like doing a book that wasn't mine. It was harder. Right. Because the voice, you know, I write for myself, but this was not written for me. But um, but that was really great. That was really exciting to do. Do you think it's about being present? Because I would say this about this podcast. When I try to script out too much, it doesn't work. It mm -hmm. only works if I let myself flow and kind of be present and get outside of the fear. and the Like, what is it about when you're doing audio? Is it practice? Because you're, they're able to edit it, I'm assuming. I mean, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> they okay. have to edit You're it. Like, like, am I, <laughs> I going to have to read these twenty pages? <laughs> yeah, no, nobody can do it without making any mistakes. So definitely, okay. there's editing. But for me, I practice. So I, I'll read it. I'll get your feel for the character, and then I'll do, um, you know, just maybe a few pages at a time or a chapter at a time if the chapters are short, and I'll practice it before right before I record um, and then if it's not going well I'll stop and spend a little more time yeah. with it but it's also having a feel for the voice that you're doing but but the last one that I did the karma under fire was so hard because it had a lot of um, Indian accents and I just was not good at it so I had to Shiva helped me a lot because he's Indian so he was able to like just tell me how to say stuff yeah but that was really hard like a Doing a lot of accents is is very challenging, especially yeah. when it's not your own accent. So, you know. Exactly. Well, um, do you want to read about two minutes if you want to read something or do you want to? Uh, 
it's I don't have you. anything that's okay. that's that short, but I I could try. I could do like a yeah. little. It bit. doesn't have to be exactly two minutes, but yeah, I want people that uh, came in a little bit later to hear you really quick, and then we'll come in and say our goodbyes. I do want to okay. tell people what the next podcasts are. Next week we have Macondista Cecilia Caballero on, who's going to talk to us about marketing your work. Um, she actually did this whole presentation on it. Um, I performed with Cecilia. She just got her PhD from USC, I believe. And she's one of the most amazing writers. And uh, Macondis does. And she's going to be on next week on Wednesday at 7 p.m. And then Dave Pelsner, who wrote A Child Called It, and who came out with a new memoir about um, how he dealt with the COVID uh, era, living at home, you know, kind of being isolated. He put out a new memoir. And Dave Pelsner is going to be on in two weeks. So I just wanted to highlight those two writers that are coming on. So let's have you finish this out with the reading. And then we'll come back and say goodbye to everyone. I'm going to put the camera just on you and mute myself. Here you go. Okay. This is called Time Travel. 21 years later, I'll run into you outside the past station in Hoboken. In front of the wide green awning that leads down to the trains. Sounds of rumbling below and the din of chatter swirling. You'll yell my name above the noise, saying it like a question, as if you could actually be unsure that it's me. I'll turn and totter on the top step just in time. Seconds later, and I'd be swept into the stream of bodies flowing to the tracks. It'll be shortly after 5 p.m. on a late September weekday, humid and sunny with air that smells of commuters caught in unexpected high heat. Perspiration will roll down my back and leak between the butt cheeks you used to make fun of. I'll squint against the sun and stare at you. You'll smile with closed lips and brown eyes that will be gentler than I remember. Several seconds will pass before you'll say, wow, first time I've ever seen you away from home. Where are you living these days? Manhattan. I'll say, oh, the big city, you'll say, like it's a truly good thing. I'll nod. I won't ask you anything. I'll look at you and wait. Suits of blue, black, gray, and tan will dodge and whoosh past us in both directions, heels clicking on concrete, huffs and impatient scoffs will be in the way. I'll shield my eyes with one hand and be silent for so long, it'll feel impolite. You'll hold a cheap gray suit jacket over one shoulder, your white collared shirt bearing sweat marks under the arms. You'll smell of obsession for men. Alluring and more sophisticated than the old spice I used to notice at the bus stop during high school when you rarely spoke to me. Your chest will be broad and you'll be slim like me, which will mean something because 21 years earlier, we were chubby six-year-olds foraging together for ding-dongs and Oreos my mother hid deep in the pantry so we wouldn't overeat. We'd find them and eat them all. And that thrill was a bond we shared. But being connoisseurs of Nabisco cookies and hostess snack cakes and being buddies from the time we could crawl never made our bond as strong as the one you shared with every kid in the neighborhood but me. Someone will bump into you and you'll fall into me and grab my arm before I lose my balance on the top step. Sorry, you all right, you'll ask? I'll say fine, thanks, and take my arm back. That day, 21 years after I lost you, I'll be wearing a tomato red kufi atop unapologetically kinky hair, 
wild kinks I tamed the soul out of when I lived across the street from you, hoping straight hair would make me pretty and more like everyone else. But you called me an ugly, bubble-butted nigger at the bus stop. Elementary school became junior high, which turned into high school, and I barely existed. You had all those years to speak to me. That day, I'll wonder, why now? I'll stop there. Woo! I've heard you read that piece. It's how we met. I've heard you read that at the Antioch reading. Oh, okay. (laughs) That piece is at the very end of the book. Mm -hmm. And we flash forward from Maddie, who's now years older, somewhat around the age or maybe a little a little younger than in um homegoing and yeah beautiful beautiful thank you your work is magnificent please get tony ann's books uh university of georgia press 2022 winner of the flannery o'connor award light skin gone to waste edited by roxane gay and written by tony ann johnson beautiful collection of stories thank you so much accents publishing you can find everything on her website uh, TonyAnnJohnson.com. Thank you. I'm so honored I got to have you on. Thank it's you. It's been it's amazing. Such a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you so much. And thank you so much for reading so closely. Uh, yeah, I, I love your work. It's not work to read your work. It's a joy. So thank you for writing your books. And thank I can't you. wait for your next one to come out. And we'll talk later about uh, Inlandia. They, okay. need to, they need to read your work. Okay. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Like I said, watch us next week. Cecilia Caballero is on, and uh, you want to hear this. It's going to be about marketing. Writers never talk about marketing. I love marketing. Tony Ann likes marketing. We like (laughs) marketing. Why? Because people don't read your work if they don't see it, right? It has. You have to put it out there. So, bye, everyone. Have a great night. Bye.